Well, I want to open up this morning with a small text from Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. There's no, there's no other Old Testament event that, that so well types out uh, redemption. As we, I mean, we just had many, many, many sermons on Exodus, and so we know this very freshly in our minds. But the, the deliverance out of Egypt, out of the bondage and the slavery and the oppression of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea is one of the great redemptive pictures of the redemption effected and accomplished by Christ. And uh, particularly in, in this one aspect of these verses I want to read this morning, uh, that it shows the essential nature of faith, of saving faith. And so I just want to read two verses, actually maybe a couple of more, but, but uh, let us start with these verses. Here the, here the children of Israel are uh, trapped between Migdol and the sea by God's ordination. He brought them there to a dead end. There's the Red Sea in front of them. And here, according to God's ordination, comes Pharaoh and his host coming to reclaim them. And so their hearts are full of fear. They've got to do something in order to escape. And, and it's, in this, it's in this dilemma that God speaks to Moses and uh, tells, them, tells Moses to say this, which now Moses says uh, in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 14. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have, not, whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you. Well, that's just, that encapsulates so well the work of God in redemption in Christ Jesus and how we receive it. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord with this, this cognizance that He shall fight for you. And then I, I can't stop there uh, because the point is for us... The, 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 the ultimate point is not that we don't fight. The ultimate point is who God is and what He is in His promises. And so, uh, I really have to read a couple of verses in addition to that out of Moses' song in the next chapter in which he says this, Who is like unto Thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like Thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou, Thou, stretched out thy right hand. Well, that's, that's just marvelous. It would be easy to talk about that for the whole hour. Uh, God-centeredness, God in view, that, that is the way to salvation. It's the way to assurance. It's the way to peace. God's attributes and actions studied very intimately by us, which we have his word to help us do. So let's, let's uh, open in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your power, and we thank you for the power of your word in us, if we have believed. Uh, We've come to believe in no other way than by the effectual working of your powerful word in our own hearts. We thank you for your spirit, Father. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his great work upon which we stand and upon which we rest until that final day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, this is week number eight in our class on the Great Awakening. 
And last week we looked at George Whitfield, just up to his conversion. We saw his uh, introduction into the Holy Club, if you remember, his acquaintance with the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. Next week, we want to continue following George Whitfield as he crosses the Atlantic to America. And at that point, formally speaking, the Great Awakening actually has its start with George Whitfield's arrival to America. Not that it hasn't already been that the 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 uh, the showers, if you if you might want to call them that, the showers of God's work haven't already been pouring forth, but the deluge really comes when Whitfield arrives in America, and that's in the year 1739. So his conversion, uh, as we looked at last week, was in 1735, and then he will come to America in 1739. Between those four years, I, I want to linger this morning in that period of time, between those four years, between his conversion in 1735 and his arrival in America in 1739, to look a little bit more at, at John and Charles Wesley. Uh, their ordeal in America, as it, as it turns out, uh, and then back in England, and then at another figure who will loom large in a few weeks to come, and that is David Brainerd. Uh, I, I, I'm sure a number of you, if not all of you, have heard of David Brainerd, are somewhat familiar uh, with the reason why he is such a, a revered name in church circles, particularly uh, with regards to his mission work in America, in the wilderness of, of New York and Pennsylvania, and then in New Jersey. Uh, he he uh, really is a principal figure in the Great Awakening and in the, in, in the years immediately uh, following these years of the Great Awakening. So we want to look at him and his struggle to find peace with God in conversion also. And you notice we're looking, we're looking at these, primarily up to this point, these leaders in the Great Awakening, the preachers, and we're seeing something of the anatomy of their own, uh, their own striving in a legal way to find peace with God and to enter the ministry. Many times they, 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 their goal, their ambition was to enter the ministry, as we saw with George Whitfield last week, before they even have a settled peace with God. But they have a sense of God's calling already on their life, and yet they don't have a sense of his peace. And, and we see this, even though it happens in different ways, in principle the same thing is going on. God is laying his hand on these, these young men and calling them into his service and then grappling with them, and they in turn are grappling with him. And we're going to see that with these three men uh, this morning. So let's, let's move hastily into uh, the Wesleys. Uh, we were introduced, like I said last week, to them and, uh, and with their fellow members in the Holy Club. And we saw their, their legal strivings, again, uh, and yet they saw themselves as upstanding Christians. And yet that, by their own testimony later on, was not at all the case at the time. That's, that's, the, that's the amazing thing. Well, in those nine months while Whitfield was convalescing, you remember he had gotten deathly ill. He almost did die because of his, his own asceticism. Uh, while he was convalescing back at home in, in, in Gloucester, the two Wesley brothers were traveling across the Atlantic to America. And they were part of, a, of, a, of a, uh, a group that was going to Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia was the last of the 13 colonies to enter uh, the Union. Uh, 
Did I say union? Uh, no, it wasn't a union yet. Uh, I'm sorry? The last colony formed. Yes, the last colony formed. Thank you, Claude. And uh, the Wesleys were bound on the ship going as missionaries to this colony in Georgia, in, in Savannah. You see a little picture of that in the year 1734, which was the year before the, the, the Wesleys arrived. It's just a, it's a small grid of a town there. You can see the trees have been, been cut down right on the, the coast. It was October 1735 that they sailed. And on board the ship with them was a group of German Moravians. Now, the Moravians, you, you, you may know something about the Moravians. Their roots extend way back to before the Reformation. They go back to the days of John Huss, who, like Wycliffe, was, was a precursor of the Protestant Reformation. So we're talking about the late 1300s, early 1400s, when we're talking about John Huss. He was... Uh, martyred, he was burned at the stake in the year 1415 at the Council of Constance uh, after he had actually received a safe conduct from the emperor to come, which is why, if you remember when we, we were uh, studying the Reformation, how, why Luther was so reticent about accepting a safe conduct to do the same thing, because he knew Huss had been burned a hundred years earlier. Well, Huss's followers were these Moravians, and their, their leader at the current time was a German count uh, named Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Now, Zinzendorf was a great and shining light in the church. He really was. Um, we don't only have positive things, though, to say about Zinzendorf. Many positive things to say about him. There's some negative things, too. Uh, we're not going to get into all of this, but you see his picture in the handout. And you see his very famous hymn, among other hymns, and we sing it frequently. It's one of the great, great hymns of the Christian church. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Uh, I love that hymn. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Well, in Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravians at this time, uh, we really see represented all in, in, in a single person, all the warmth, all the vigor, uh, all the intensity of German pietism. And you remember we made the distinction weeks back between, between German pietism or Lutheran pietism on the one hand and Reformed pietism on the other. So we're not, we're not speaking of Calvinistic piety here. Nonetheless, there's a deep, there's a deep vein of, of, as I said, warmth and vigor that you see among the Moravians and really embodied, as I said, in Zinzendorf himself. But you also see that, that basic flaw that, that we talked about, this this because it was a reaction to the Lutheran orthodoxy that had become dry and arid and very meticulous uh, and argumentative in order to preserve correct doctrine uh, that had gone off uh, into a certain sterility that really was lacking the warmth and vigor that, sh that is implicit in the Christian faith. Uh, so the German pietists understandably reacted to that uh, but they did so not by bringing a balance, but by going to the opposite extreme and emphasizing the subjective experience, because that's what they saw as lacking, uh, to the exclusion, to some degree, of, of a priority on objective doctrine. And for that reason, uh, there's so much attractive about them, but there's certain dangers that you have to be aware of if you're, if you're immersing yourself in the German pietists. There's so much to gain, but there's also... Uh, so many errors to avoid.
Well, the reason I say that is because the Moravians had a profound uh, stamp on the Wesleys themselves, because it was under the influence of the Wesleys, that the, the, of the Moravians, that the, the Wesleys themselves were converted. Very strong influence on them. And it was a good influence so far as it went. But there was an abiding influence that left the Wesleys uh, somewhat unclear and, and, and ambiguous on certain finer points of detail that actually would make the difference between an Arminian mindset and a Calvinistic mindset. So the Wesleys were anything but Calvinists. They were great evangelicals. They were not, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, Calvinists at all. Although you can never tell by reading Wesley's hymns. You read Wesley's hymns and they sound very Calvinistic, but he was not. He abhorred the doctrine of predestination. Uh, But he loved uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone. So put those things together and, and you have the Wesley's. Well, the Moravians did have a tremendous zeal for missions, and hence we see them on board, uh, the Moravians as missionaries sent out by Zinzendorf, uh, not just to America, but to all parts of the world. It was really one of, one of the, the, the first great pushes in the modern era in the way of Christian missions. We, we can lay that at the doorstep of the Moravians and thank them for it. So here they are on the ship, 1735, and the Wesleys were with them. Well, John was observing them on the ship. He was very impressed with their demeanor. Uh, Gladly serving the other passengers, uh, says Wesley, even when mistreated, no complaint, says John, was found in their mouth. The really profound moment, and, and probably most of you are aware of this, was the great storm that broke out at sea when they were crossing the Atlantic. A violent storm rose up. Uh, John was thrown down on the deck in in fear for his very life. Uh, He realized at that moment how little assurance he actually had uh, because he he was afraid to die. He was not sure of his own state. Well, this is what John writes in his diary at the time. The sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. I mean, there's just this mass panic. uh, Screaming, bloody murder. And uh, John was among them. But the Moravians were there. They were all together. And they were calm. They were singing hymns. I mean, (laughs) the contrast couldn't be greater between here two, two members of the Holy Club who perceived themselves as being holy men, totally falling apart uh, at the seams. And here were these German Moravians, so, so serene. Well, the storm passed. uh, Nobody died. Nobody fell overboard. But when they landed, four months later, it was a long trip across the Atlantic, longer than than usual, uh, they landed in Savannah. John approached the leader of the Moravians, whose name was Augustus Spangenberg. He was second in the hierarchy only to Zinzendorf himself. So Spangenberg and Wesley are having this meeting. Wesley's asking, what, what, what was going on there? Why did you apparently have no fear of death? Well, this, again, this is a famous exchange that Wesley records. Spangenberg said to Wesley, My brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley says, I know He is the Savior of the world. Spangenberg, true, but do you know he has saved you? Very, very personal application. Wesley said, I answered, 
I hope that he has died to save me, but I fear that they were vain words. So that was his state uh, after crossing the Atlantic specifically for converting the Indians. Uh, That was his mission, why he came. Uh, Full of religion, empty of faith. That, That sums up John Wesley at the time, and Charles for that matter. One of the Georgians who the Wesleys were serving said this of John. John, John became very unpalatable uh, in, the, in the minds and the hearts of the Georgians that they came to minister to and to preach to. This is what one of the Georgians said of John at the time. He appeared to us a very odd mixture of a man, an enthusiast, and at the same time a hypocrite, wholly distasteful to the greater parts of the inhabitants. So... Um, you probably cannot expect great success in a situation like that between the leader and the people. So that was, that was John. But for John and Charles both, the entire adventure was a disaster. I mean, it just was utterly fruitless. Uh, they grew more and more depressed. Charles, in fact, grew so depressed that he got physically sick, was laid up in bed, and in the summer heat of Savannah, uh, it was just a terrible situation. So finally Charles quit and... He went home to England to recover. Miserable in body and in soul both. So now John was left alone. John got immersed in some serious legal troubles. Uh, at least one major suit, if not more, were lodged against him uh, because of his overly strict ways with the people, uh, invading their rights and so forth. Well, Finally, uh, under cover of night, secretly, he abandoned the whole affair and he left and crossed the Atlantic to get out of trouble, went back to England again, uh, just like his brother, totally depressed. uh, Not only because of failure in the ministry, but how that reflected on his own lack of assurance as well. Like, who am I? What am I? What have I been spending all of these years in the Holy Club doing? And for what? Utterly nothing. Well, he arrived back in England... February 1st, 1738, and on that day he wrote this in his journal. It is now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned of myself in the meantime? Why, what I least suspected, that I, who went to America to convert the Indians, was myself never converted to God. So that's, that's his own testimony at the beginning of 1738. So now both brothers were reunited in London. Uh, Who should they seek out but the Moravians? It was the only bright spot in their whole life at this point. Something about this group. So they sought them out. uh, In London, Peter Bowler was the leader there of the Moravians. He was leading Bible studies. And uh, Charles came this time, not John, but Charles came and he asked him, uh, for advice. Well, Bowler looked at Charles and, and asked him the reason he hoped to be saved, much in the same way that Spangenberg had asked John in Savannah. Well, this is what Charles says about his answer for the reason he hoped to be saved. Because, Charles says, because I have used my best endeavors to serve God. And then he says that uh, Bowler just shook his head and said no more. I mean, talk about, you know, a deafening silence, uh, utter rejection, shaking his head and saying no more. Uh, Charles says, I thought him very uncharitable. And I said in my heart, what? 
Are not my endeavors a sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. Well, this is almost exactly uh, Whitfield's condition, if you remember Whitfield, uh, last week when he looked into that book that Charles himself had given him by uh, Henry Scougal, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Whitfield opened it up and read it, and immediately he was convicted by this author because the author was take, pulling the rug out from under him, essentially, and saying, all of the things that your hope is in have absolutely nothing to do with true religion. It's the life of God in the soul of man that counts. Nothing else. Well, Charles had given that book to Whitfield. Well, now a friend came to Charles and gave him a book. He took it up immediately. It was Luther's commentary commentary on the Galatians. It's this little book right here. It's a great book. It's, it's, it's really a pleasure to be able to go back when you read uh, the narratives in church history and they talk about books that they read that were so influential and you can just go and pick them up, buy them, and read them yourself and really get in not only to the heart and the soul of the person reading the book, but then immensely profit yourself from the same ministry of the gifts that Christ has given to his church, namely putting his spirit in men to preach his word, to declare the gospel. And that's what you have in this little book among many, 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 countless, countless others. So, Luther's commentary on Galatians. Charles immediately began to read it. Actually, his friend and he read it together. They were meeting regularly to read this book. Uh, This is one of the things that made a deep impact, especially on Charles's friend. Faith, this is Luther speaking, faith is neither law nor work. It apprehends, it lays hold of Jesus Christ. Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. But only to accept of him who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, that's the New Testament version of what we just read in Exodus. Standing still and seeing the salvation of the Lord. Letting the Lord himself in his promises and in his works loom large in your view. That is the way to be saved. It is the way to have assurance. Well, night came. Charles said he couldn't sleep. Uh, He went through this course for some time. Uh, I looked for Christ, he says, all night with prayers and sighs and unceasing desire. So the the desire there is so strong, so strong for the Lord. Well, two days later, May 21st, this was the day of days for Charles. That's what he called it, the day of days, May 21st. Of 1738. The Spirit of God strove with me, he says, till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief. I found myself convinced. I knew not how nor when. And that's an interesting statement because in some cases we see, I mean, it's like a laser uh, when, when some of these men are charting the work of God in their souls. And it's like a light, like a ray, like Jonathan Edwards spoke of, or George Whitfield. Here, Charles is, is indicating something a little more subtle, but nonetheless overpowering. I, I, I don't know how, I don't know exactly when, but I now began to find myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. So that was May 21st that he recorded that. Exactly a year later, May 21st, the next year, 1739, he he penned a hymn, a poem, called For the Anniversary Day of One's Conversion. For the Anniversary Day of One's Conversion. It's in your handout, and it's actually, uh, 
the hymn we better know is O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. I mean, we generally have four or five stanzas in there. There was 18 stanzas originally, and it's an autobiographical account of Wesley's own conversion. So sometime when you have the chance, you know, look it up online or whatever, read, read the whole thing all the way out, and you really get a window into the soul of, of Wesley in his own conversion and, and his eyes being open to the, the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The one line in there that, that I really love is in the second verse on the handout, sudden expired the legal strife. That's such a great, great way to put it. Very wonderful. Well, meanwhile, that, that's Charles. Now we want to turn just for a moment or two to John, who was still seeking. Uh, three days later, so this was just May 24th, both, both men were seeking in their own way, uh, but their experiences chronologically were so close together. So three days later on May 21st, uh, John was, was, was compelled, uh, persuaded to go to a meeting of the Moravians that evening of the 24th of May. He says, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street and there one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. So here's Luther again. One is his commentary on Galatians. The other is a very much shorter work. It's just his preface. In Luther's, uh, in Luther's German Bible, he wrote a preface to each of the books. And his preface to Romans is a classic. If you ever get your hands on that, it's well worth reading. Uh, fantastic. Well, this is what was being read. There was no preaching going on. Just, just reading it verbatim from the, from the pulpit. This is what John says. I'm sorry, this is not what John says. This is what Luther says. Faith is a work of God in us which changes us and brings us to birth anew from God. It makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. It makes a person joyful, confident, happy with regard to God and all creatures. He will serve everyone, suffer everything, for love of God who has shown him such grace. Well, that's Luther. And as John was listening to these words and the rest of them in the preface, this is what he says. And this is, this is in the annals of church history, this is a very, very famous statement, one of the most famous. I felt my heart strangely warmed. You've all heard that statement. That's John Wesley. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So that's without, without going into any more details. That's Wesley's, John Wesley's experience. So John and Charles, three days apart, May 21st, May 24th, 1738, uh, became new men and effectively began a very, very fruitful ministry for many, 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 many years afterwards. All in England, by the way not in America. But now we do want to come to America at the same time. This is the spring of 1738 when everything was going on that we just looked at with regard to the Wesley brothers. That same time in the spring of 1738 uh, in Connecticut a, a young man was marking his 20th birthday and this was David Brainerd who we want to spend the rest of the time the little that we have this morning looking at but then later on, in coming weeks, we will we'll come back to him uh, pretty hard. Uh, Brainerd, I, I just can't say enough about Brainerd. He, he died only 10 years later 
He was only, uh, actually less than 10 years, he was under 30. He was uh, 28 or 29 when he died of tuberculosis. Uh, in the home, in fact, in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. So the two converge, and we'll come back, as I said, to, to both of them in later weeks. Well, he, he was preparing to enter the ministry himself. He had decided to become a pastor, but he was striving in the same legal way, in the same legal manner that the Wesleys had in Whitfield uh, before them. He was born April 20th in the year 1718. 1718, if you recall, was the year that the Tennants came to America. William Tennant with his sons, Gilbert and, the, and John and William Jr., they came to America in 1718. That was the year in Connecticut that David Brainerd was born. Has anybody ever read uh, Brainerd's journals, his diary, journals? Not a single person. Ah! We have one right here. If I had a copy here, I'd give it to you, but I don't. So, uh, if I had one, I would actually show it to you. I actually have it in a, in a, a large, in Edwards's works, because Edwards was the one that published it. Uh, he received all of Brainerd's papers after he died and put them to, he, he, he set his own work aside for the moment because he said, this is so important, this has to be published. The church has to have this ministry of the work and the life and the ministry of David Brainerd. So he put everything to the side, worked on getting that into print, and then went back to his own, own work. Uh, but the diary of David Brainerd is, is a Christian classic. It really is. Um, it's one of, the, one of the great engines, again, of missions. We talked about the Moravians, but Brainerd's diary and journal uh, was one of the great motivations for quite a number of famous missionaries uh, that came after him. All right, enough of that. Uh, at nine years old, Brainerd's father died. At 13, uh, his mother died. A mortal sickness spread through the whole town and his mother was taken in that epidemic. And so he was left uh, with no parents whatsoever when he was 13 years old. Uh, at this point, he says in his own diary, I was roused out of my carnal security by all of this death that was around me. He reflected on the brevity and the insecurity of life. And now sometimes I hoped that I was converted, or at least in a good and hopeful way for heaven and happiness, not even knowing at this point what conversion was. So by his 20th birthday, he says, now I designed to devote myself to the ministry. He became very strict. He became very watchful. Again, I mean, he would have made a good member of the Holy Club at this point. I was frequent and fervent in duties. I took great delight in the performance of them. Nothing at all wrong with this. This is, this is so much of the Christian life, to be frequent and fervent in duties, to take great delight in the performance of them, no doubt whatsoever. I became remarkably dead to the world, and I imagined, I imagined, I did dedicate myself to the Lord. In short, I had a very good outside and rested entirely on my duties, though not sensible of it. I rested entirely on my duties, though not sensible of it. And that's very typical. One who is resting on his duties uh, typically is not sensible that that is what he is doing. Uh, that's so much of what the Great Awakening preachers exposed. You're resting on your duties and you're not sensible of it. Here is the Word of God set forth to make you sensible of it. Well, this was Brainerd at the time. So when he did well, and I'm sure... Uh, Presently or previously, all of us can relate to this. It's so, it, it's like we're looking into a mirror if we're Christians when we read these kinds of things. 
When, when he did well, he says, I could in some measure venture on the mercy of God in Christ. That is such a telling statement. When I did well, I could venture on the mercy of God in Christ. In other words, he, he, he hadn't a clue as to what the mercy of God in Christ actually was. It received sinners, not the righteous. He was trying to get himself prepared, and now he could venture on the mercy of God in Christ. Uh, almost more than any other statement, this, this betrays his carnal thinking at the time. Uh, scrounging about, as it were, for moldy crusts of bread in his own life to, to bring to the throne of grace. Uh, that, that's, in effect, what he's doing. He's, he sees them as shiny, glittery, great things that God will actually smile at. But it's, it's mold. Uh, it's mildew. It, there's nothing in it. And he's bringing them when the whole vast ocean, as it were, of Christ's own infinite merits that are offered freely to him, he's just walking right past them. He does, he's not even sensible of them, like a natural mind cannot be sensible of. So he says, Alas, all my good frames were but self-righteousness. Thus I healed myself with my duties. I healed myself with my duties. Again, that's, there's so much packed into these very brief statements. I healed myself with my duties. The foundation of my hope, he continues, was some imagination of goodness in my heart meltings. Now, he's, you see he's even descending into himself. Uh, he's not talking about external works, but my heart meltings. It's like, okay, I have this good feeling towards God. He'll accept that. He'll accept that. He's searching for something. Well, that was on the one side. I could in some measure venture on the mercy of God in Christ. But then on the other side, when he sinned, when he sinned, he says, it made me afraid to go to the throne of grace. And that, I mean, that almost makes one want to cry, to be afraid because of your sin, to go to the throne of grace. For what other reason is the throne of grace set up by the most merciful, mighty God? Then for sinners to bring their sin, for sinners to bring their poverty and nakedness, and to be welcomed freely with no cost. That's the whole point of the throne of grace. And yet here he is in his natural way of thinking, religious, but natural, that, that he can't come to the throne of grace until he deals with his sin. It, it is just so tragic. But it wasn't eternally tragic because we're about to come to the good side. But not yet. Not yet. We still have some quarreling that Brainerd has with God at this point. Being afraid to go to the throne of grace, it, 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 it is a pitiful thing. And we pity it. But we have to... We should not make any mistake. It is, it is stark unbelief. From the human side, it's pitiful. Uh, and even from, from the God side in His mercy, it's pitiful. But at the same time, this, this, this is to try and attempt uh, God Himself because it is nothing but naked unbelief. Uh, it is unbelief to be afraid to go to God. It's the same unbelief that Adam and Eve had in the garden after they sinned. Couldn't come to God. They're hiding. It's unbelief. There's no other way to put it. I mean, we can put it other ways, but that is the biblical Pauline way to put it. And, and in that state, we stand condemned because we are calling God in what he has said in his invitations and his command to come. We're saying, you are a liar. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I think too highly of my sins and myself and not enough of you and your promise of grace, your very word. I despise it. Not despise in the sense of hate, but despise 
in the sense that you don't think highly of it. That's, that's the biblical meaning of the word despise. You don't think with the proper regard of it. Well, that's not a static situation, that kind of unbelief. It, it, it is a cancer, and it gets worse if it's not dealt with. And it grew worse in Brainerd. He says, now he descended from this being afraid to a most horrible frame of contesting with the Almighty, of finding fault with his ways. So, in one moment he's afraid to come, and the next he's charging God with injustice. Because it's your fault that I'm afraid. You're not accepting everything I'm bringing. The first point of his quarrel with God was God's sovereignty. You remember Edwards dealt with the same thing. I could not bear, says Brainerd, I could not bear that it should be wholly at God's pleasure to save or damn me just as he would. Romans 9 was a constant vexation to me, especially verse 21, which says, Hath not the power potter over the clay? Thinking on this verse always destroyed my seemingly good frames. For when I thought I was almost humble, almost resigned to God, then this passage would rise up and would make my enmity against the sovereignty of God appear. The Holy Spirit was clearly working and convincing him of his sin. Secondly, the thing that really irked him, that he quarreled with God about, was that faith alone was the only condition that God laid on salvation. You must have faith. You must believe. He couldn't even grasp what faith was. He couldn't understand it. He didn't know what it meant to stand still. Again, to, to quote, uh, to, to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. My heart rose. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. He didn't understand this. So, he picked up a book. And it's this little book right here by Solomon Stoddard. Remember, Edwards' predecessor, A Guide to Christ. It's a wonderful little book. A wonderful little book. Fantastic. Uh, He picked up this book. It had been recommended to him. So Brainerd began reading this, but he says, my heart rose against the author. Not only against God in the gospel, but his heart is now rising against this author who's guiding him to Christ. For though he told me my very heart, yet he did not tell me anything I could do that would bring me to Christ, but left me, as it were, with this great gulf between this huge vacuum, this huge chasm. He didn't understand what faith, he didn't understand what it was to do nothing. The natural mind doesn't understand this. When I say do nothing, I'm not speaking of quietism. I'm speaking, again, and I hope you understand in the context, doing nothing but looking upon him, as God says, look upon me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. I didn't understand these things, says Brainerd, for I was not yet effectually and experimentally taught that there could be no way prescribed whereby a natural man could of his own strength obtain that which is supernatural and that which the highest angel cannot give. I love that quote. That's the title that that we have at at the top of the handout. That which the highest angel cannot give. It's in God's hands altogether. He gives and withholds according to his own wisdom and counsel. He is to be feared in the matter of salvation and to be bowed before and submitted to. Well, this is what Brainerd was about to discover. Just as his his last shred of hope was expiring, uh, all hopes, as he said, of ever helping myself by any means whatsoever, light began to rise. One morning, he says, while I was walking in a solitary place in this this state of having his hope just totally evacuated from his heart, uh, 
I saw at once all my contrivances for myself were utterly in vain. That it was forever impossible for me to do anything towards helping or delivering myself. And I wondered that I had not been sensible of this before. It suddenly became so obvious. It was like a light, except it was light on the negative side of things. There's nothing I can do. All this time I thought there was. And I see it as plain as day. Not only so, but he goes on, he says, not, o- not only did I see that I could do nothing, but now I saw that something worse had attended my duties than barely a few wanderings. For the whole was nothing but self-worship, a horrid abuse of God. This, <laughs> this tremendous as you, as you trace this progression happening very rapidly now. This was the first rise of a true repentance in his heart. He had been defending himself before God, quarreling with God, Now he sees God was right all along. I could have never made this calculation on my own. But the Spirit of God is penetrating and now he's seeing what he couldn't see before. And that's true repentance. To take sides against yourself with God. That's truly in the spirit of Psalm 51. And David, against you and you only have I sinned. Not a contesting with the Almighty, as he said, but a taking part with God against yourself. This is really... This is really the beginning of salvation. You remember at the Northampton Awakening how Edwards says so many were enabled to take part with God against themselves. And Edwards then says when this was the case, when they were able to do this and found themselves condemning themselves in agreement with God's verdict on them, then he said they commonly have some evident sense of free and all-sufficient grace. Well, this was Brainerd's cases exactly. And then we conclude here two days later. He returned to the same solitary place that he had been walking two mornings ago. And now he says, in this state, where you you could say, in a very John the Baptist way, that the way had been prepared for the Lord now to enter. Unspeakable glory now seemed to open up to my soul as I was walking. A new inward view of God as I had never seen before. Nothing comparable to it for excellence and beauty. Here's the object of his faith now is beginning to shine like the sun. And you cannot but believe when this is the case. When God looms so large and glorious and self-sufficient. A new inward view of God as I never had before. My soul rejoiced to see such a God. I was inwardly pleased that He should be God over all forever and ever. You remember just briefly ago he was quarreling with God that God would appoint salvation however He pleased. And he found fault with that. Now, he was very pleased that God, who is infinitely wise, he couldn't see it before, now he can see it. Now, what better place to place the salvation of my soul than this infinitely wise God? Because he will do what was best. And not only, but infinitely good. He will do what is good. My soul was so captivated and delighted with his excellency, loveliness, and greatness. See, he's not revolving around himself anymore. He's been deplaced, and he's not even realizing it. He's so beside himself with this, with this view of God that he's forgotten about himself, which is the first time in his whole life he's ever forgotten about himself. And this is what he says. He says, Now I had no thought at, all, uh, at, at first about my own salvation and scarcely reflected that there was such a creature as myself. At this time, at this time, the way of salvation opened to me with such infinite wisdom that I wondered I ever should have thought of any other way. I wondered that all the world did not see and comply with this way of salvation. Well, that's what makes a great evangelist. 
someone who sees this way and wonders why all the world doesn't comply with it. There's, there's a power of persuasion begotten by the Holy Spirit. This way of salvation entirely by the righteousness of Christ. Now I could not but sweetly rejoice in God lying down and rising up. Well, that's it. That's as far as we're going. Uh, this was in July 1739. Two months later, in September of 1739, he entered Yale. And that will move into another chapter of his preparations for the ministry and some troubles that he encountered there at Yale. Uh, but at just this time, then, we're going to return to Whitfield, 1739, and, and his arrival in America. So that's where we'll come to, Lord willing, next week. Let's close in prayer. We thank you, Father, as always, for these great things, these precious things, these living things of Jesus Christ. Be with us in the coming hour. Minister to us, Lord Jesus, yourself, by your Spirit. Amen.